We're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, our interview with Professor Philip Rosenzweig. Ron, this is a long time coming. I have been a fan of this book for a long, long time, as I know you have. And I think we did mention it as one of our in one of our previous series of best business books, didn't we? We did. All-time best business books. In fact, I think it was on your list, but it's on my list, too. So I am so looking forward to this. Just an absolute honor to, to be able to interview Phil. Well, before I bring Phil on, let me just give you a quick bio of him, and we'll ask a little bit more about his background. Uh, Phil Rosenzweig is a professor of strategy and international business at IMD in Switzerland, although he lives in the UK. He is the co-director of Transition to Business Leadership and is also co-director of the Dual Executive MBA program with CKGSB. Uh, His areas of expertise include strategy, firm performance, and complex organizational design. He has written on the management of multinational firms, with articles published in Strategic Management Journal, Journal of International Business Studies, the Academy of Management Review, Management Science, and the California Management Review. He's also the author of numerous case studies for firms such as Microsoft, Daimler-Benz, Heineken, Dubai Aluminium. I said that in the UK way for him. Uh, Vodafone. Uh, he is recently he has focused his attention on critical thinking and managerial decision making, which I'm sure we'll get into a little bit. His 2007 book, and this is the book I referenced earlier, The Halo Effect, and eight other business delusions that deceive managers that takes a critical look at the errors that pervade much of business thinking has been translated into 14 languages. His more recent book in 2014, Left Brain, Right Stuff, which we'll spend probably the last segment on, How Leaders Make Winning Decision extends the research about decision-making into the world of strategy and development. Welcome to the soul of enterprise, Phil Rosenzweig. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, let me just ask you this. I, you began your career, I noticed in your bio, with Hewlett-Packard, but how did you make that tr- the transition to academia and why? Oh, boy. Um, I, um, I grew up in an academic family. I, I had the example of my dad, who was a professor, and he got to work on things that interested him. He didn't have a boss. He set his own hours. He traveled. He did a lot of things that uh, I thought were pretty cool. And when I was working uh, for HP, which was a great company in those days, maybe not today, but in those days it was, uh, I, I didn't find that I had quite the fulfillment or interest uh, working for a large company, and I got to age 30, and I thought, you know, I think there's something else I want to do. By that time at HP, I was working in our leasing operation, and part of my job had me go around the country and teach uh, some of our sales reps at HP how to use leasing and sales finance tools, and I thought, you know, I I like writing the teaching materials, I like teaching, I like uh, being in front of a group, and I thought maybe that's really what I ought to be doing. So when I was uh, 31, I, I made the shift, I I left the job, and I went back to be a student. I did my Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania at Wharton, 
and four years later, um, I had turned myself into a a business stroke or slash academic. And it's a it's a nice career in that you have one foot in the academic world where you're interested in ideas and reading and thinking and writing, but then you have one foot in the business world where you're concerned about practical applications. And so, I finished at Wharton in 1990, which is almost uh, 28 years now, and I've been doing this ever since. Well, again, your book, The Halo Effect, is the one that came to both Ron and my attention, I think shortly after it was published in 2007. And what uh, what I'd like to do is spend a little bit of time talking a, a bit about that book. And I, I'm just going to read the... the uh, the eight delusions out to the audience. I know I'm not. We're not going to take them in turn, uh, but I, I just want them on the record, so to speak, so that you can perhaps refer back to them. The first delusion is called the halo effect, and I'll ask you about that. But then there's also the delusions of uh, correlation and causality, of single explanations, of connecting the winning odds, of rigorous research. The sixth one is of lasting success. Seven is of absolute performance. Eight of of the wrong end of the stick, and the last is the ninth of organizational physics. And let's just talk about the first one because it's the only one that really has kind of this really neat moniker. And I wanted to ask you about that: the halo effect. How did you? Mm-hmm. What first of all, what is it? And what was the the, the brainstorm that came up with that? What do you think? Ah, the halo effect. That's what it's called. Well, I didn't come up with that term, okay? That's a term that has okay. been around since 1920, so almost 100 years wow. now. Uh, it's a term that uh, was coined by a, a famous professor of psychology named Edward Thorndike. Thorndike was a professor of psychology at Columbia University in New York City. And 1920 is just after the end of World War One. And during those years, the United States had many more people in uniform in the military than we had had, I guess, ever, uh, at least since the Civil War. And we had, we had gathered a lot of psychometric data about people in uniform. There was a lot of information about how Army officers evaluated their soldiers. Uh, and Thorndike is looking at this data, and he says, you know, there's something fishy here, because some soldiers are rated terrific at everything, even things that you would not imagine are correlated. So a a given soldier might be thought to be uh, a good marksman, have a strong command voice, make their beds well in the morning, play the harmonica, polish their shoes. Everything about them was just great. And then there were other soldiers where everything about them was not great. And Thorndike is looking at this and he's saying, I don't believe this data. I don't believe that one person is good at everything and somebody else is bad at everything. I think what's going on is something else. I think what's happening is that the commanding officer, maybe for good reasons, concludes that a given soldier is a very good soldier. And based on that overall impression, makes attributions about lots of specific things. So they don't really know if this person is good at some of these things, but my gosh, I think they're a terrific soldier, so I make those attributions or inferences. For the the soldier that we think is not good, the term there was the horns effect. Think of the devil's horns. So either you have a halo over your head like you're an angel, uh, or you have horns because you're a devil. And the point Thorndike makes is that we have general impressions about things, and those shape specific judgments. So if I think that somebody is good, then I make lots of inferences that may or may not be substantiated on their own, but they seem to tell a coherent story. 
So, again, I didn't make this up. Thorndike came up with it, but I apply it to business. And the, the main idea, or one of the main ideas in the book, is that in so many things in the business world, and not just in business, but I, I'm writing here about business, uh, if you see a company that is doing very well, sales are up, profits are up, share price is up, what do we naturally say about that company? We say, well, you know, my gosh, they must have a, a brilliant strategy. And they've got a really good leader. That's a, a visionary leader. And they, they're terrific at uh, customer responsiveness. And they've got really motivated people. Well, maybe those things are true and maybe they're not. But they certainly are reasonable inferences once we know the company is doing well. If you know that a company is not doing well, what do we tend to say? In fact, if that same company suddenly now has a decline in growth or profits or their share price plummets, what do we say about that company? Oh, I think they lost the plot. They became too conservative. Uh, the leader became uh, arrogant. The people became complacent. And so there's a great tendency in the business world, as well as in many other aspects of life, as, as Thorndike found, where an overall impression leads us to make a specific judgment. And that's the essence of the halo effect. And, you know, I have to say that at the be very beginning of this book and preparing for this interview, I went back and, and you know, Ron and I were both uh, curious to, to make this observation that, that yours is one of the, the, the last books that we both read an actual book. <laughs> so it must have been in 2008 or 2009 when I made the transition to Kindle and have okay, since read, read, read everything on 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 Kindle. Uh, so you know it, it was fun because I'm you know back in back in the day I had a, a a highlighter and a green pen and as is my custom was writing notes in the margins. And I have to say at the very beginning of the book there is a lot of yeah buts followed by some kind of thing. Um, only to read through, and by the end of the book, I'm going, well, he's killed every single <laughs> but mm, one mm. at a time. Uh, so so kudos for that. And in fact, I, and I trace my, my thinking back to, to something. I read a book by David Meister um, called um, uh, The Practice Equation, I believe it was, something like that. And in this book, he says that he's found that there is empirical evidence for causality. He actually says causality, that mm -hmm. employee satisfaction yields customer satisfaction, and customer satisfaction yields financial performance. Mm -hmm. Is that thinking wrong, though? Well, and if so, so give, it, give us your best, best quick refutation of that thinking, because I believe it's wrong now. <laughs> um, look, it sounds right. There's a good story that seems to be appealing. If you're good to your people, your people will be good to customers, and things will go well. Uh, I have yet to see, and, and, and by the way, I would never tell your employees, I would never make your employees unhappy, and I would never tell them to make <laughs> customers unhappy. Uh, that's surely a bad thing. But I have not seen a study that controls for other factors and in a reliable or a credible way is able to isolate precisely the sequence of causality that you describe. Okay. Again, let, let's not get this wrong. Phil is not saying, oh, it doesn't matter if your people are happy or not. No, I'd, I'd much rather your employees are satisfied than not. I'd much rather that they, uh, they, they, they treat customers well or not. But if one believes that holding everything else constant 
treating employees well, making them happy, results in this, results in that, I think we're missing a lot of what really does drive uh, company performance. And a lot of what drives company performance is making difficult decisions of a strategic nature, and you make those decisions under conditions of uncertainty. Now, if you make those decisions in a way that your company is successful, I think it's very easy to look back and say, oh, well, gosh, it looks as if our employees are happy. And you think that employee satisfaction leads to company performance. There's actually some very good empirical evidence that suggests that there is a stronger effect in the opposite direction, i.e., show me a company that's performing well, and that leads the employees to be satisfied more than the reverse. So it's just a little bit more complicated than that. Again, I'm, you know, I, I'm not against the idea of employees being satisfied and treating customers well, but to talk about a sequence of causality in quite that way, I don't think has been well shown. Uh, totally agree. It's it's now what I call we it, back in my Excel days a circular error, right? We now <laughs> you now have completed the circle. We're now a self-referential equation, and therefore it's invalid. So, wow. Um, already our first segment's flown by, Phil. So thank you for that. Want to remind our our listeners that you can get a hold of Ron or myself by sending an email to ask tsoe at verisage dot com. Website, of course, is thesoulofenterprise dot com, where you can see our show notes from. All of our previous shows, as well as previews of upcoming shows. But right now, a word from our sponsor and the people who handle our social media, Leading Results. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Is your website just a brochure, or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. All right. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Professor Phil Rosenzweig, and he teaches at IMD in Switzerland, and he is the author of The Halo Effect, one of uh, 
Ed, in my, in my favorite business books of all time. And Phil, I, I have to ask you, you know, you say in, in your book that uh, you quote Richard Feynman, Feynman who, who we love here, and, you, and he says, many fields have a tendency for pomposity. <laughs> and boy, is that nowhere is that more true than in business books. I'm kind of convinced that hell's bookshelves are stocked with business books. And if you're lucky enough to go to heaven, you're probably confronted with great literature in the bookshelves. But our business books, for the most part, and, and I don't consider yours a business book because I think yours is timeless. I think you'll be able, people will be able to read your book in 20 years and it will be just as relevant no matter what's going on. But do, is, is, are most business books just absolutely overrated or wrong? Um, so my answer to that would be, I think there's a lot of good business books, and what they have in common is they do not overstate their claims. Now, if, if, if you want to write a book about uh, a leader you admire or a company that's done well, and you say, look, this is what I think they've been good at. This is what I think the company has done that's made it successful. I'm not saying this is an absolute truth. I'm not saying if you apply this, this will work for you. But this is what I describe about somebody or something that's been successful. I would tend to be very charitable about that. And there are a lot of good books that do that, and I, I think that's fine. What I get a little bit upset about, and what I uh, was was you know pretty pretty uh, pretty tough about in the Halo Effect, was books that overstate their claims, where they lend claim to a level of scientific rigor that is simply wrong, that is misplaced because they don't understand what makes good research good and they don't understand what makes claims valid or invalid. And as a result, they lead to suggestions of what you, a manager, can do to make your company successful, and they make extremely strong claims. If you do these six things, you will be successful. And sometimes they even invoke uh, explicitly the language of science. They talk about causality that is, you know, as predictable as physics or something, and that's complete nonsense. So while I'm tough on books uh, that, that I think make some of these errors in the halo effect. I, I don't want to be seen as somebody who just thinks everybody out there is doing bad stuff. There's a lot of business books that do not overstate their claims, and, and I'm fairly charitable about them. Right. No, I agree with you there. Uh, it seems, though, like the best-selling business books mm -hmm. are in uh, that other category where they do overstate. Those seem to be the popular ones anyway. Well, and, and there I would generally agree with you. And what makes them popular, what makes them irresistible, and you will see these on the bookshelf. They were on the bookshelf when I was writing The Halo Effect, and there's a new generation of them out now. They are irresistible because they say, you know, hey, Ron, if you do this and this and this, you will become a great leader, a successful CEO. Your company will be great. And what's a little bit perverse here is that those books are not good at the level of science, which they claim to be. They really operate at the level of inspiring stories. But they are inspiring as stories precisely because they say that they are not stories. They say that this is science. So there's something, I'm going to choose my words carefully here, uh, dishonest is maybe a little bit too strong, but there's something misleading there when in order to be a compelling story, it is couched 
as science, which it is not. And so a lot of what I'm trying to do in this book is I'm trying to say I have nothing against stories. I have nothing against stories that inspire people. But I want readers to get better at knowing what is good research and what is not, and not to fall into the trap of believing that something has validity and scientific rigor when actually it doesn't at all. Right. Now, I I, want to follow up on that because that's an interesting point. Uh, You also write in the book, do business questions lead or lend to scientific investigations? And you say in many instances, yes, there's no need to veer between extremes of the humanities and science. What kind of things lend themselves to real good scientific studies, I mean, that are replicable? Sure. So, and that's a great question. Uh, Almost anything that involves a bounded phenomenon where you can control other variables and have a large sample size. Now, you're going to say, well, that sounds very abstract. So let me give you a few examples. Um, If I am a retail store, I can run an experiment. If I change the price in this store versus that store, what is the effect on sales? Okay. Uh, if I'm in manufacturing, I've got many, many units. I can try different processes, and I can look at what the result is in terms of failure rate or cost or efficiency. So these are, yes, it's the business world, but whether it has to do with customers or pricing or manufacturing, it lends itself to large-scale experimentation in a controlled setting. By the way, your companies like Amazon are not only brilliant at that, they're they're brilliant at being brilliant at it, if you know what I mean. They're very good at learning, using data, and so forth. And part of the controversies we're seeing right now about use of data is because many companies have large amounts of data and use that those data in very good scientific ways. Let me come then to the other question, which is, so, okay, what cannot easily lend itself to scientific Uh, investigation in an experimental setting. And the answer there is two kinds of things. One is when you're trying to study the performance of a firm. For example, let's say I had an idea of the best way to manage an acquisition. This is very different now from how I deal with a customer or how a customer responds to a price. Now we're talking about managing the integration of an acquisition at a firm level. I cannot run an experiment there. I cannot say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to buy 100 companies, manage 50 of them this way, 50 of them that way, and see which way is better. I can't do that. I I, I don't have the capacity. I can't do it for ethical reasons and so forth. So one of the things I cannot do is study firm performance in the same way. The other reason I cannot study firm performance, quite apart from the size and, and, and the resources needed, is that the very nature of firm performance has a relative component. Okay? Let me come back to Amazon changing a price on a good. Are you going to buy it? Am I going to buy it? What happens to the sale price? Well, those are individual discrete decisions that customers are making. I'm not making my decision relative to what you do. You're not making your purchase decision relative to what I do. It's an absolute decision. Whereas the performance of a company in a competitive market setting is inherently relative in nature. And so if your dependent variable is something like revenues or profits, 
I can't study one without already considering the activities of others. And so the answer to your question is what I can look at with some of the tenets and uh, principles of science would be repeatable, narrow decisions like customers, product manufacturing, and so forth. What I cannot do is the explanations of firm performance. And as we said earlier, one of the reasons why these books are irresistible, these big bestsellers, is they claim what leads a company to be successful. But the nature of company performance is almost um, impossible to study with quite that level of scientific rigor. Again, that's okay as long as you don't claim that that's what you're doing. But what a lot of these books will do is they will claim a level of scientific rigor that is not only misplaced, it's almost impossible. Right. I, I, yeah, I love your delusion of absolute performance because mm-hmm. performance is not absolute. It's, 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 rel- it's affected by the performance of others. So the, the thought experiment of, is GM a better company? Well, sure, they make better cars today, but relative to their competition... Right. Uh, maybe not so. Um, in, in the last few minutes we have in this segment, Phil, I wanted to ask you, because I thought this was another provocative line in your book. You say, we have no satisfactory theory of effective leadership that is independent of performance. And I don't know if you've read Jeffrey Pfeiffer's you know, Stanford uh, University professor's book, mm-hmm. Leadership B- BS, mm-hmm. is the title of his book. It's kind of mm-hmm. provocative, but... Um, I, I, you know, that's another book I'd put up there kind of with yours in terms of taking a contrarian position. But is leadership overrated? I mean, it just seems like one, the last thing the world needs is, is another leadership book. And, and they are irresistible because everybody wants to become a better leader, and I'm not against that. I, I, as you said at the very beginning, or as, as Ed said, I direct a program at IMD called Transition to Business Leadership, and we talk about the roles and the functions of a leader and so forth. And I think that it is a topic that people can get better at the way you can get better as a teacher or a parent or or lots of things. So it's not a totally vacuous concept, but the problem that we often have with leadership, and this comes back to the halo effect, show me a successful company, and it's very natural to say, oh, wow, they've got a really good leader. Must have a good leader. Look how successful the company is. And when a company takes a dip, it's very easy to say, hmm, I think that leader's not so good anymore. If all you, if you're definition, if your operationalization of leadership is inferred from the performance of the organization or the company, then you have not articulated a valid independent concept of leadership. You have not articulated something that can actually be a driver of firm performance because, in fact, it is a reflection of firm performance. And so, the, the quote that you read there where I said we don't have a very good theory of it, it's not that we don't have some good principles. And, and I, I don't feel bad standing up in front of a group and saying, look, here's some things that, that you know, are important for leaders to do. But we must be clear that if all we are doing is making inferences about what is a good or not good leader based on the results of the company, we do not have an independently valid concept. Right, right. No, that's a fantastic point. Well, Phil, I knew it. This is just flying by. We're already up against our next break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to 
uh, contact Ed or myself. Send us an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com. We will post full show notes with our discussion with Phil and links to his books at thesoulofenterprise.com. Please go out to iTunes, give us a rating, keep those emails coming. We love to hear feedback from you and ideas for future shows and guests. And now we want to hear from our sponsor, Abacus Next. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Results CRM, the award-winning Abacus Next product, is a customer relationship management solution that will automate your business processes, streamline workflows, and deliver consistent results. Cloud-enabled to provide access to your users anytime from anywhere. Grow your business in 2018 with the number one QuickBooks CRM. To learn more about Results CRM, visit ResultsCRM.com. Clouds come in all shapes and sizes, and the Abacus Private Cloud is the perfect fit. Abacus Cloud enables all the desktop apps you know and love while providing unparalleled security to your business. Cloud functionality gives you the flexibility to work where you want, when you want, and from any device you want. Don't waste countless hours managing IT. Take back your time. Learn more at abacusnext.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back with Professor Phil Rosenzweig of IMD in Switzerland and talking about his book, The Halo Effect. Uh, Phil, I wanted to, to get your reaction to a couple of different things. Um, well, first, I want to share a, a story with you that, and, and thank you. I believe it was shortly after you, I, I read your book that I, I happened to have my one and only chance to be interviewed on, by the Wall Street Journal for an article uh, I'm sorry, Harvard Business Review, not Wall Street Journal, the Harvard Business Review. And during this interview, I said, well, business ain't science. And that's the one and only quote that they took from me. So, <laughs> and I think it was it was directly because I had just re- read your book. So thank you for that. It got, got me quoted in Harvard Business Review uh, one time. So, um, but I wanted to ask you more, more about a couple things uh, that are perhaps tangentially related to the book. What are your thoughts on firm or business benchmarking? Mm-hmm. 
Um, uh, if, if I were running a company, I would do benchmarking to see what others are doing. Uh, when I was working at Hewlett Packard years ago, we did some benchmarking about certain processes within our financing organization. And it's useful to say, oh, is there something that others are doing better than us? as a remedial way to catch up. But never imagine that benchmarking is going to be the basis for you to be better than others. It's a way to perhaps overcome deficiencies or gaps to bring you up to a standard, and it's worth doing. But one of the things I talk about in the book is that because firm performance is better understood as relative rather than absolute, it's not as if there's some formula, and if you apply it, and benchmarking is one aspect of that, you're going to be a great company. Because, again, if every company in your industry is following the same formula or following the same benchmarking practices, by definition, you're all going to be average. And success in a competitive market setting, in a competitive industry, means you have to do some things others are not doing. So I think there's a lot of room for benchmarking to overcome gaps on the downside, but do not imagine that benchmarking is going to distinguish you on the upside. You know, it's curious that you say that because one of my observations in being involved in some benchmarking um, projects is that that, uh, oftentimes people, when they're confronted with the reality that they're below some benchmark, they'll immediately question the data, Hmm. right? They're like, I don't don't know if that data is (laughs) right. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So, but and if and of course, if they exceed the benchmark, they're like, "Well, I guess we're doing pretty good there." You know? <laughs> so yeah. Just, just, just kind of funny. Um, well, uh, questioning the data is is a, is a different problem, um, and there may be reasons to question the data. But even if you believe the data, even if you have conducted the benchmark and you said, "You know, look, I, I looked at what we're doing, I looked at our processes, our elapsed time, our defects, whatever it may be." And I look at some other organization or I look at what the, the best in class is and I'm satisfied with the integrity of the data. Even then, as I said, it can bring you up to a norm, but that may not be enough to do better. And, and that introduces one of the really thorny problems that we have in the business world, which is that in order to be better than others, you're going to have to do some things differently. And doing things differently means taking chances. If everybody knew what those different things were and everybody did them, they wouldn't be different anymore. So an, an intrinsic aspect of strategic differentiation is decisions under uncertainty. And therefore, the job of the, of the CEO or the manager or whatever, the leader, whatever you want to call that person, is to improve your probability of success, to find ways to be more likely to succeed rather than not. But if anybody tells you that they can guarantee success with a certain predictability, they're kidding you. Because again, ask yourself the question, if everybody in the industry followed that same formula, would everybody be successful? And the answer is clearly no. And that's, in my view, one of the real... mm, One of the real problems of some of these books that say, here are the six steps to being great or whatever it may be, uh, they, they, they leave out, they overlook the fundamental uh, dimension of competition and differentiation and therefore of decisions under uncertainty and risk. 
You know, one of our, our, our other guests, Professor uh, uh, Jules Goddard of London Business School, uh, said this when he was on our program. Strategy is the art of staying one step ahead of having to be efficient. <laughs> and I- <laughs> well, uh, I, I liked everything until you said having to be efficient. I mean, I, I, I think I know what he means. Uh, the, and the idea there is if you're different enough in certain ways you can get away with not being as fully efficient as you may be. But I like very much the beginning of that sentence, which is, it is about staying one step ahead. The question is, what is that step? Because that one step that may make you different in a useful way, now and again, you may find out was not successful. And that's the nature of strategy. And so a lot of what we do in terms of some of the frameworks and logic is to improve your probability that that step will be a productive one. But the nature of competition is that sometimes it may not be. Uh, turning from the from the firm to the individual, do you, do you have any thoughts on the use of personality profiles, especially with regard to, say, the hiring process? Well, I think you'd have to look more particularly, more specifically than at, at, at what one you're talking about. I think some psychometric profiles are, are probably reasonably useful. Some of them probably have their limits. That's different from what you might want to talk a little bit about, which is not so much psychometric profiles on hiring, which can be useful but are, are not a be-all and end-all, uh, from something else, which is how we do performance evaluations of employees we already have. Should we talk about that for a moment? Sure, sure. We can shift to that. Yep. Because there, there's, and this is an area that I think uh, what I've written about speaks to very clearly. Uh, I, I work with a lot of companies, and I know many now, that will say, oh, you know, we don't just do an annual review for Ed and say, you know, is, is Ed... You know, is it thumbs up or, or not thumbs up for Ed? We're very sophisticated. We have a competency model. We evaluate Ed on six different competencies. We ask things like, uh, how is he good at uh, driving for excellence or teamwork or creativity or, you know, customer satisfaction, whatever it may be. And then we don't just have these six competencies. We measure each of these competencies four different ways. So we've got 24 different measures. It's all very sophisticated, and we gather lots of data. And my answer is that's fine. You can ask 24 questions if you want. But what are the people thinking when they fill out those surveys? Because what we know from the halo effect is if last year your department met its targets, if you met your targets, if things are going well, I'm going to tend to say, yeah, he's, he drives for excellence. Sure, he does. Look at his results. Yeah, he shows good initiative. Yeah, he's good at teamwork. It's the halo effect again, because I don't have 24 different opinions about you or, or even six different ones. I probably have one or two general impressions. And we fool ourselves by imagining that if I ask 24 questions, I have a lot of data that is somehow more impressive and more accurate than if I ask one or two. So we kid ourselves. So I'm not against performance evaluations. It all comes down to what is that question that you ask? For instance, instead of saying, is this person good at teamwork, you know, rate them one to five, or they're okay, or they're very good, or whatever, you have to say, here's what we mean by teamwork. Here are examples of teamwork. Here is something that is 
clearly definable in a way that I'm not simply going to perceive it differently or make a different attribution based on an overall impression, but you've actually defined it in a way that I know it when I see it. And the big problem I see in so many performance evaluations is we don't do that. Uh, And we kid ourselves in imagining because of the number of questions we ask, we've achieved a level of sophistication and validity that we have not. Sure. Uh, just uh, we've got about three minutes left in this segment, and I want to, to ask you, you talk a little bit about you know, measuring uh, customer satisfaction, whether it's through NPS score, uh, the Reichheld work, or you know, employee satisfaction using different tools. One thing that, that struck me, and this was a question I wrote in the margin of the book, I, you know, certainly financial performance is something that is looked at on a on a frequent basis. You know, some sometimes on a even a weekly basis, but for many businesses, at least on a monthly basis, if not quarterly basis. Do you think that there would be more value in some of those measurements, such as NPS and employee sat, if they were looked at more than once a year, the same way that financial uh, numbers are? Um, not necessarily. I don't think it's a question of the frequency. I think it's a question of the validity. If you do it multiple times and it's not valid, I don't think you have very much. (laughs) If you do it once or twice a year and it is valid, I think you have quite a bit. Uh, And again, let's come back to employee satisfaction. I am not against measuring employee satisfaction. If I, at my organization, we measure employee engagement and satisfaction. The question is, what do you do with those data? If what you do is you say, hmm, this is interesting, some departments seem to be more engaged than others, that can be useful. If you can say, what's different this year from the previous year, that can be informative. You might ask questions like, are newly hired employees less engaged than people who've been around a long time or vice versa? That, all that is useful. And I would measure it, I'd look at it, and I would think, what can I do differently? But here's what I would not do. I would never imagine that if I change engagement by X percent, that will lead to a performance outcome of Y percent, holding everything else constant. Because engagement isn't necessarily a driver of performance. It's also the result of performance. And the very way that, you, that we perceive engagement can be a reflection of performance, and therefore it cannot be used to describe or, or define uh, the causes of performance. And that's the big problem that we have. We, we, we lose sight of what are the causes and what are the effects. That doesn't mean you shouldn't care about engagement. It just means you can't make that simplistic causal attribution. And by the way, there are companies out there, there's a book that comes out every year that makes that claim. And it's an irresistible book. It's an irresistible article you'll read in major newspapers that will say, oh, I won't mention the organization, but they describe, you know, if you, if you improve, if you make your place a great place to work improved by X percent, it will have a Y effect on performance. Totally invalid, and people don't, aren't very good at understanding that. Great, great stuff. Um, against this last segment, I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me by sending the email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Of course, the hashtag is uh, hashtag asktsoe on Twitter, and we do monitor that during the show, so we'd love to get any of your questions that you have on the air. But right now, a final word from our sponsor, and in this case, my employer, Sage. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wherever your business is headed, Sage has the cloud solution you need to enable mobile accounting and simplify financial management. Discover how moving your financial data and accounting processes to the cloud can transform your business. Cloud accounting software from Sage can help you make better decisions, drive faster responses, and gain greater control. That's cloud accounting for the journey. For more information, visit sage.com forward slash US forward slash SOE. There is no blueprint for running the perfect firm. No way to know the challenges you'll face. But your journey does not have to be an odyssey. Experience what it is like for every part of your firm to be connected. Experience a practice management tool where everything is just a click away. Experience Office Tools. To learn more, visit officetools.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Phil Rosenzweig, the author of The Halo Effect, a book that uh, Ed and I just absolutely loved. And Phil, I have to ask you about this because I want to tell you a real quick story. I read I read your book uh, in 2007, same year it came out, and shortly thereafter, I did a talk. Who the very next day, the keynote speaker was the author of the book that you so critique in the Halo Effect. <laughs> I won't mention any names, but you know who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm, and folks, sure. go get the Halo Effect to, to figure out who I'm talking about. You're going to know the book. You're going to know the author. And it's not personal. But I actually uh, told the story, or told the, uh, used the line from George Andrews of the Wall Street Journal and said that you know this book by this famous author paints a picture of business somewhere between Norman Rockwell and Mr. Rogers. And I gave some of your critique, you know, to the audience. And I said, I, I really think you should go out and buy the halo effect after listening to tomorrow's keynote. And Phil, I got slammed. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, I value, I, and, and I just have to, if I can get slammed just by parroting a couple of the delusions, I can only imagine the blowback that you got. What, what was the response to the halo effect from the, from the academic business community? Oh, well, so the academic business community loved it because I was not criticizing the academic community as much as I was criticizing the people who were writing the popular books. So a lot of academics liked it. Uh, and uh, I, think, I think the question you're asking, the people who slammed you were probably practitioners who like the feel-good six steps to becoming you know, a great company kind of thing. Um, 
And I never heard from those people. I, I actually got no blowback. What I got from those folks and what I got from some of the authors I criticized was, was just silence. Uh, because I think at some level, the, the people who considered the arguments understood that uh, I, w- I was right. And I, I never got any, not one, response from a prominent author. And I talk about several in the book. Um, and I think the reason why is at some level they probably realized that my critiques were valid. When reporters have asked some of those people uh, to respond to concerns in my book, they've been dismissive and have said, oh, you know, our critics, they don't, my critics don't really understand. Uh, and unfortunately, the journalists have just said, well, okay, Phil said this, and then the response was that. And they never followed up by saying, well, wait, what do you mean they don't understand? They're asking you questions about validity. They're asking you questions about the causal relations that you are claiming. What can you ask, what can you say about that? Uh, the, the response I got, and I continue to get, was from many, many people who have said, you know, I always knew something was fishy about those books. I always figured that something was a little bit too good to be true, but I didn't, I couldn't really put my finger on what was wrong with those books. But now that I've read The Halo Effect, I understand that there are problems with the integrity of the data. I understand there are assumptions about absolute versus relative performance, and I see the mistakes a lot of these authors make. So the response has really been very, very positive. Excellent. You know, in in the book, you quote Michael Porter, who says company performance is driven by two things, strategy and execution. Mm -hmm. And we hear this all over. We need to execute better. And Mm -hmm. you said... Whenever someone says, we have the right strategy, we just need to execute better, I make sure to take an extra close look at the strategy. We have a saying here on the soul of enterprise that there's no good way to execute a crappy strategy. Isn't the strategy at at, at a fundamental level, and maybe on some level, more important than the execution? Well, you can argue that both ways. Uh, And I, I think they're both important. You can't execute well a bad strategy, but conversely, you can have a good strategy and not execute well. So I'm, I'm actually less concerned about, you know, is it this or is it that? They're both important. And the fact is, in a competitive setting, you are up against rivals. You better do both of them pretty well. But the point I'm really trying to make is not one versus the other. It's to understand each of them on their own. Strategy is fundamentally about choice. And it involves choices that you make under conditions of uncertainty. How will should we be in this market? Should we offer this product? Should we offer this service? What is the right price point? How do we differentiate? And what you try to do in strategic thinking is improve your probability of success. But there's no formula. So it's always a matter of making certain judgments under uncertainty. And then you come to execution. And, yeah, you, you quote me there saying, you know, all kinds of companies say, well, we, we, we just need to execute better. I tell the story in the book of a session I was at once where a CEO said that. And I saw 40 heads in the room nod. And I was sitting in the back and I thought, this company is not going to do anything better because... 40 people are nodding, but they're thinking of 40 different things because there's so many facets of execution. And what the CEO did not say is, here are the three or four things that are most important for us when it comes to execution. Until you can get to that level and say, for us, it has to do with order fill rate. It has to do with 
a certain defect rate. It has to do with speed to market. You know, what, what for you are those metrics of execution? And can you then talk, you know, spread the word in the organization, measure, improve, some benchmarking, of course, to get better at those. The problem we have about execution is if you do not take, if you don't, if you don't define or operationalize the term in ways that you can measure and compare, it's just motherhood and apple pie. Right, right. No, that's an excellent point. I love that. You wrote a uh, kind of a follow-up book to The Halo Effect called Left Brain, Right Stuff. Can you give mm-hmm. us an overview of what that's about? Well, a lot of The Halo Effect is saying, you know, here's, here's delusions, here's mistakes. And I spent a lot of time uh, knocking down things that I think aren't done very well. And, and a bunch of people got to the end of the book and said, okay, smart guy, so what should we do? And I said, well, that's, that's in a different book. And the reason it's in a different book is if I put it all in one book, first of all, the book would be too long. And the other thing is that people would have kind of skipped over most of the arguments in the halo effect to say, oh, you know, what's the answer? So I put that in a separate book. But left brain, right stuff, the subtitle is How Leaders Make Winning Decisions. And the idea there, it's not how people make good decisions. There's lots of books, you know, by, by a lot of prominent people in psychology and behavioral economics about how people make good decisions as consumers, as investors, or so forth. I was concerned with how leaders in organizations make winning decisions, that is, winning in a relative sense against rivals. So what I talk about in this book here is, on one hand, this notion of improving the odds of success. However, when you come to a moment where you've made a decision under uncertainty, you don't really know if it's going to be successful or not, but you you have the ability now to inspire, to motivate, to rally the troops, to achieve success. And what that calls for a leader to do is be, in effect, selective in what they communicate to people in the organization. Because if you are 100% candid about all the problems that might happen and all the things that we've never done before, you may demotivate people. So part of the art of leadership is to inspire, to push boundaries, to motivate. The book is called Left Brain, Right Stuff. It's a little play on words. It's not one of these psychology books, left brain, right brain, you know, analytical, creative, and all this. I'm contrasting the rational, analytical, detached, objective thinking we associate with the left brain with what I call the right stuff. This was Tom Wolfe's phrase about the U.S. space program. You might have seen the movie, The Right Stuff. This was the quality that, that, you know, the astronauts had, that NASA had, about pushing boundaries. We were going somewhere we had never been before. If you say, oh my gosh, you know, we've never done this before, to imagine we can go to the moon, that must be wildly overconfident. Well, by one measure it is. You're you're undertaking something you've never done before. But if you're not willing to push boundaries, if you're not willing to, to challenge others and inspire them to do things that haven't been done before, you'll never do it. So what I'm getting at in this book is... Strategy and execution, those are the things you need to be successful as a company, and there is no formula. So on one hand, there's an analytical component, that's the left brain piece, but there's also a piece of of inspiration and inspiring people to push boundaries and do things they haven't done before, and that's, that's what this book is about. 
Excellent. Well, I'm going to go put it on my library. And, and you know, the halo effect, uh, you, you lit a candle in the darkness. And irrespective of whether or not you would have followed up with more of a how-to, what do, I, what do we do instead? I still think that's incredibly valued. So, Phil, thank you so much for appearing on The Soul of Enterprise. This has been wonderful and, and really enjoyed our conversation. Ed, what do we have coming up next week? Next week, Ron, we are interviewing uh, Mary J. Ruert and about her book, book, Death by Regulation, How We Were Robbed of the Golden Age of Health and How We Can Reclaim It. Oh, excellent. I can't wait. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE. Energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. In the meantime, please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com. 